2008 marks the uh, 50th anniversary that better? It was echoing a bit. It marks the 50th anniversary of the uh, so-called Mauna Loa CO2 record, which uh, uh, is really the starting point for our understanding of the carbon dioxide system and really marked the beginning of the modern research program into the science of global warming. So I'm going to talk about that story, a little bit about its beginnings, and uh, the perspective now on the CO2 system. In the mid-1950s, when my father started working on this problem, only a handful of people had actually worked on the subject of global warming. Uh, there was a guy named Callender who had speculated that CO2 was building up and was causing climate change, but he was really a loner in that subject. He was following up on earlier work of Arrhenius, Svante uh, Arrhenius, who suggested this could happen. Uh, a paper was published in 1955 by a fellow named Ploss that uh, verified that uh, the carbon dioxide molecule was actually able to absorb infrared radiation in, in, in regions of the infrared spectrum that did not overlap so strongly with water vapor that it could, in fact, lead to a potential greenhouse effect. So that was one thing that had been settled, more or less. Um, but one the, hanging over this whole issue was the question of whether carbon dioxide was actually building up in the atmosphere at all, because unless you could show that, the whole subject was kind of academic. My father uh, had done a polymer chemistry uh, and went to do a postdoc at Caltech, not being sure what he wanted to do. He was given a project to look at carbon in rivers as a kind of academic exercise. And as a piece of this exercise, he had to do measurements of carbon dioxide in the air as a complement to that. And more or less because he was having fun going out on these field trips, camping and enjoying himself, he put more effort into this than it probably merited. And he developed a rather refined measurement of it technique for measuring carbon dioxide in the air that involved the use of liquid nitrogen to extract the carbon dioxide from air samples and quantify its abundance. The impression he had from prior literature was that carbon dioxide should be highly variable in the atmosphere. And the notion that it was variable uh, problematic to envision actually measuring the buildup because you'd have to see this buildup on top of a very chaotic system. He found to his surprise that the carbon dioxide levels in the air were far more constant than prior work had suggested. That was particularly true if he went away from cities and away from vegetation that could be an immediate source or sink of CO2. The idea then germinated that all you might have to do to measure the rise of CO2 in the atmosphere was to go to a sufficiently remote location and track it over time. That idea resonated with a fellow by the name of Harry Wexler at the Weather Service or the Weather Bureau at that time, I think it was called, and the idea was to set up instrumentation on Mauna Loa. Uh, my father's career uh, exploded at that point from this small effort to measure CO2 in little camping trips to playing a leading role in coordinating a major uh, survey under the auspice of what was called the International Geophysical Year, which was a big program back then for, for about a year and a half, um, to measure CO2 on ships and on airplanes, and including doing time series, that is repetitive measurements at one site over time at the Mauna Loa Observatory, which is near the summit but not on the top of Mauna Loa, and at the South Pole. The instrumentation at Mauna Loa was... Uh, uh, pioneering in the sense that he was putting a new kind of instrumentation called an infrared analyzer out there that hadn't really been well proven yet. Um, and when he turned it on, 
the, the numbers came out, lo and behold, right near the same background levels that he thought they should be. So this was a, a reassuring sign. But unfortunately, after about a month and a half, there was a power failure, and there was an interruption in the record. And when the power came back on, the levels were, had dropped. And he was thinking, oh, my God, I've got instrument trouble. Something's gone wrong here. Okay, so something looks strange. Then there was another power failure. They were having trouble getting the station running. And it came back on again. Now things are really looking bad. Okay, he can't get back to either the first one or the second one. This is a new thing. Now it's drifting upwards instead of downwards. It looked pretty serious, like something was going on. Then finally, the, some of the power problems were fixed, and the instrument stayed on more or less continuously after that. And by about this point in here, it was pretty obvious what was happening. And that is that the, these data were outlining a regular seasonal cycle. This was immediately understood as reflecting the metabolic activity of the vegetation in the northern hemisphere, which drives CO2 uh, up in the fall and winter when there's respiration and decay, uh, and then there's photosynthetic uptake in the, in the summer months. So this is just the, the, the course of the seasons as reflected in CO2. But it also became clear that this baseline level was rising over time. And by the early 1970s, the record looked about like this. Uh, this record had already gotten a lot of attention because it solidified the notion that CO2 was building up and therefore legitimized research into CO2 effects on climate. Uh, Suki Manabe and other climate scientists got in there and addressed in much more detailed effect of CO2 on, on climate itself. And by the late 1970s, a consensus had more or less emerged that CO2 should cause substantial warming and, and that if we waited to see the warming, um, it would be hard to do anything about it that would prevent it from getting considerably worse. Now, this is what it looked like in 19, early 70s. That's what it looks like now. It's just continued to go up with a, with a curve more or less rising with increasing steepness over time. If you look at this record in detail, you'll see in addition to the seasonal wiggles, there, there are subtle wiggles on interannual time scales. Uh, and these mostly are related to El Nino events. There's, this, for example, the El Nino in 1998. You see that the peak there is a little higher than that peak relative to the others. There's a little bit of a change from year to year, but this, overall there's a, there's a very steady rise over time. It's never really gone down. Um, it's important to emphasize that in addition to this Mauna Loa record, there's a record from the South Pole that goes back to actually a little bit earlier than that. And it essentially confirms the same overall rise. There's less of a cycle there because the, there's less land at latitudes that support seasonally growing vegetation in the southern hemisphere. It's rising a little bit slower because it's further away from the sources of fossil fuel burning in the northern hemisphere. These records can now be put in the context of the ice core records. This is the reconstruction of CO2 based on air extracted from bubbles in, in Antarctic ice cores. And you see that the present level is way above the levels of the last 400,000 years. And in fact, the records now go back a few hundred thousand years further. And it's likely that this level is higher than any level we've seen for millions of years. So there's the Mauna Loa record on this. In fact, it starts from this is this, this sort of sloping bright area here is the, the Holocene. And so we're well above Holocene levels now. And in fact, the Mauna Loa record starts closer to the Holocene level. You see, we've really gone a long way from that baseline just during the course of this 50 years. Now, we understand quite a bit about why this has gone up. And an important point to emphasize is that if we take account of how much CO2 is released into the atmosphere annually by fossil fuel burning, that the expected rise rate from fossil fuel burning exceeds the observed rise at Mauna Loa. So the problem isn't explaining why it's going up. The problem is explaining why it isn't going up even faster. 
Now, an interesting exercise you can engage in is to take this curve here and reduce its slope by 57%, especially by multiplying the gain by 57%. And you're able, in that case, to actually fit the rise, not just at the beginning and the end, but also in the middle. So there's a very close correspondence between this rise in fossil fuel burning, but it's not at the level of 100%. It's at the level of about 57%. Something is taking CO2 out of the air. So what do we know about this system? Well, the observed rate of rise quantifies how fast the CO2 is building up in the atmosphere. We know the mass of the atmosphere, so we can translate that into a number of billion tons of carbon accumulating as CO2 in the atmosphere annually. And that's what this reflects, 37 billion metric tons of carbon accumulation. This is a, the decadal average ending in year 2003. Um, we know that CO2 is coming from fossil fuel burning. We have a pretty good handle on that. The, over the same decade was about 6.5 billion metric tons of, of, of carbon, and this ratio is that 57%. That is, the 2.7 over 6.5 is your 57%. So where could the carbon that's not ending up in the atmosphere be going? Well, we know that the oceans have a capacity to absorb CO2, and in fact, the science of this was worked out more or less in the late 1950s at the same time as the documented rise. And among the participants in that discovery was Roger Revelle at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And someone who, who I need to mention here is a fellow named Bert Bolin, who passed away just uh, a matter of weeks ago. He was a, a, dear, a dear friend and, a, and a really a giant in our field. And he was the first person to establish that the oceans should be taking up somewhere around half of what we were releasing. He also went on to found the IPCC another major accomplishment. So the ocean should be taking up CO2. Um, this happens in part, large measure, because the ocean is an alkaline liquid. It has a capacity for neutralizing acid. And uh, we'll hear more about this in the next talk, but it also hinges critically on this ion here, the so-called carbonate ion, as to how much the oceans can take up. The land also has the potential to absorb carbon dioxide. Trees grow, of course, and as they grow, they take up CO2. But forests by themselves don't automatically for every tree that's growing, there's another that's falling over and decaying. So I have a trouble with sound, aren't we? Is there anything I should do differently here? No? You don't know what's going on? Okay. Seems like it's an electrical contact problem. Okay. <clears throat> so, so trees take up CO2. Forests don't necessarily because they can be in a balance where they're not accumulating biomass. Nevertheless, it's possible that the, the plants will respond to rising carbon dioxide by, by growing faster because carbon dioxide does act as a fertilizer, an aerial fertilizer for many types of plants, and that could, in principle, cause plants to accumulate, ecosystems to accumulate carbon. We also know that direct human impacts on land, particularly the clearing of previously forested land for agriculture, leads to carbon dioxide releases. So we have buildup in the atmosphere, we have releases from fossil fuel, and then we have an array of processes where we know there's some, we know the sum of all three of these because they have to add up to the difference between what didn't end up in the air. But by these two fairly well-defined quantities, we don't have the individual quantities, we only have their sum. Now, one thing you can do is you can, of course, go out and actually look at how much carbon's in the ocean. You can try to track how much carbon's in different ecosystems and in different plots of land around the world, and you can try to account for what's going on with land. This is going on in a very ambitious and concerted way right now. Um, it is important to emphasize, though, that there's one nice handle on this that can come from the air itself, and that's by looking at changes in atmospheric oxygen. 
Now, it turns out that as we're burning fossil fuel, we're, of course, taking carbon dioxide. We're, 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 we're removing oxygen from the atmosphere, so that's been going into the carbon dioxide in part. Also, some of it actually goes into making water. The exhaust of a car, if you look on a cold day, there's a lot of steam coming out the back. That's the water that got made. Some of that came oxygen in the air. There's, um, if plants are taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, they're also producing oxygen. And if there's biomass burning or land use change that has CO2 from decomposed, that will also involve uptake of oxygen. So all three of these processes that involve organic matter, either being formed or destroyed, have a reciprocal effect on oxygen. The uptake of carbon dioxide by the oceans is an inorganic process that has, in this expression here, no effect on oxygen. So if you could measure the change in oxygen in the atmosphere and correct for the fossil fuel effect, you can get a handle on the net of these two and therefore on the ocean, since their sum is constrained. Now, I started a program to measure changes in oxygen in the late 1980s, and this is a record from a, a site in uh, uh, Cape Grim in Tasmania. This is run by the, uh, uh, the CSIRO and the uh, Cape Grim Observatory. The collaborators said they take the samples for me. I analyze them in their lab. Here's the oxygen concentration. You don't need to worry about these units. Uh, I should emphasize that there's a lot of oxygen in air. Air is 21% oxygen. And what we're talking, what, 100 of these units, I guess I could say, is something like 100 out of a million oxygen atoms being lost in the atmosphere. So there's a lot left. We're not about to run out of oxygen. The challenge wasn't to, to worry about that, but just to actually measure these really small changes. But we now have this change reasonably well quantified. And what we find is that the rate of oxygen decrease <clears throat> is slower than what we'd expect from fossil fuel burning over this period. Now, why would that be? Well, fossil fuel is taking up oxygen, so it's, it would be going down at this yellow slope. But it's going down less fast because something else is producing oxygen. It's a suggestion <clears throat> that there's a net formation of biomass, which leads to a net photosynthesis and a production of oxygen. So that is the key to getting back to this budget here. So we have a quantification of the net change in biomass from oxygen, and we can get the ocean effect from that, in effect, because we know there's some. <clears throat> and that establishes that over this decade, we were, the oceans were taking up, up about 2.2 of these units. Now, we don't have a really good way to separate these two effects. We now have their sum constraint. Um, but the way this typically is done is to, to, to use direct estimates of human effects on land to try to quantify that. And here's an example of a recent estimate of 1.8. This is a rather uncertain number, I should point out. And then just by adding it up, you can force the budget to balance. You can estimate how much is taken up by land plants. So you see here that on, by this measure, the oceans and the land are accounting for roughly equal portions of the sink. Fossil fuel burning is the largest term by far in this budget, but there's also a significant direct human impact here. So this is basically how we decompose this. I should emphasize that in this budget, the ocean uptake, its, its quantity, is well-determined. The mechanism is reasonably well understood. On land, that's, that's a little different. Um, first of all, it's not that well quantified because uncertainty in land use projects directly into uncertainty in this. So if land use were half of this, this were, 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 were one pedogram less, this would also be one pedogram less in the other direction. And that's in the realm of possibility considering our uncertainties right now. The mechanism by which the land takes up CO2 is also not well established. 
The direct fertilization effect that I mentioned is probably part of the story, but it's not, it's not believed to be all of the story. And there are other effects that could happen, like uh, the uh, combustion of uh, uh, fossil fuels also releases nitrogen into the environment that can act as a fertilizer. That's actually one component of acid rain, but it can have a fertilizing effect when distributed uh, sufficiently. Um, it's, it's also possible that, that climate changes and other effects are influencing this sink. Now, we can take our, our knowledge of these sinks and project them forward based on current understanding and therefore establish a basis for understanding what will happen to the atmosphere under different future scenarios of fuel use. Pretty much said that already. And here's the Mauna Loa record, now on a time plot extending into the future. And if we continue to burn fossil fuel at essentially the, the sort of business-as-usual scenario where we don't worry about its environmental impacts, the carbon dioxide is predicted to continue to rise in an accelerating place. Basically, the Mauna Loa record will hold its scenario right on into the future, right through the next the, the, the current century. That's probably what we, not something we would like to see happen. Rather, we would rather to, to slow the growth so that we can stabilize at some level that would avoid uh, dangerous uh, climate impacts. And the exact level required to do that is a matter of discussion, but a reasonable uh, assessment might be that we want to hold it below something like 450 parts per million. So these are the kind of scenarios one might imagine in the future for CO2, and we can translate those based on our knowledge, present knowledge of the sinks, extrapolating forward to show what kind of a reduction in emissions would be required in order to pull this yellow curve down to be like the green curve. We'll have to, instead of the, the CO2 emissions continuing to rise more or less at a similar growth rate, we'll have to cut them over. Basically, the emissions have to stop growing almost immediately. We have to cut them quite dramatically over the century so that what we're burning in 50 years is, is, is less than half of what we're burning right now globally. And we can say this with some confidence because our present knowledge of the sinks projects forward to tell us that we have to cut to that level to do that. The ocean and the land just aren't going to soak up way more CO2 than they're doing in the future. They're rather going to project with some, some knowledge and we can say that the emissions have to be cut down. This perspective on the sinks, however, doesn't take account of one important factor and that is that as the climate itself changes, the ocean sink and the land sink may themselves change their behavior. And this is a subject which was clouded in uncertainty because it's really at the cutting edge of science. Um, but I want to say a little bit about how this might go and why there are the concerns about it. One of the major concerns here is that warming could destabilize pools of carbon on land, that is, carbon stored in soils, carbon stored in trees, etc. There's also potential effects of warming on the ocean, which David Archer will talk about in the next talk. Um, one thing I want to point out, though, that these effects, if they're going on, are going on at a rather small level to date. And we can say that with some confidence because we have such a nice relationship between fossil fuel burning and the Mauna Loa rise. There haven't been any big surprises yet in this record. In fact, it's tracking with, with, with almost astonishing regularity the growth in fossil fuels. So this tells that the sinks have been growing also in proportion to fossil fuel in order to keep the proportionality at 
And of course, there are little changes year to year, so it's a little bit hard to say if, if the last year, if it was a little bit higher or lower, it's something unusual or not. But, to, but because we expect a little bit of variability in this system on a year-to-year -year basis, it's really hard to draw firm inferences from just a few years of data. The big picture is that it's been behaving with regularity. But nevertheless, on land, we have to worry about what might happen. Now, this is an attempt to capture in a slide the measure of the size of various pools of carbon in play in the system as we move forward. Here's the present atmospheric level. Here's some measure of the ultimate resource available from fossil fuel burning. That's not the, uh, the known reserves, but rather the, the reserves that are expected to be developed as, the, as, the, as the, we move into the supply and develop new methods of extraction, for example. Um, now, already from this, you see something interesting, and that is that the amount of fossil fuel if we burn it all, is enough to increase from the atmospheric level some, from some four or five times, right? So we, we could potentially jack CO2 up pretty high if we go through this. And by the way, this has already increased some 30% or more since the, since, the, since the baseline of the Holocene. The pools on land look like this. The plants have about 650 of these billion metric tons of carbon. Um, smaller than the present atmosphere, but not by a lot. There's also carbon tied up in, in frozen soils in the Arctic and peat, and soils as a whole have a lot of carbon outside of these peat and permafrost. Um, and the perspective on this is most of this is probably a little bit hard to decompose, but some of it may be vulnerable, and particularly in, in the higher latitudes, you could get warming, releasing carbon from some of these pools. And now, the two points I want to make about this. First of all, if we stay on business as usual and just go through this resource, basically at 4% growth or 2% growth out through this next century and eventually using it up over the next few hundred years, um, the amount we release is probably larger than any potential release from these systems. So we probably dwarf what's going to happen from, from, from releases here. The real problem in that case is that we're committing ourselves to enormous climate changes. And so the emphasis should be on trying to figure out how not to go through this fossil fuel burning. On the other hand, if we decide to curtail, as, as, a, as humanity manages to control its dependence on fossil fuel and reduce the emissions from this, um, then we have to compare what we will be allowed to emit under some reduced scenario with what's potentially released from these systems. And as David Archer will emphasize in the next talk, if we want to avoid dangerous anthropogenic influence on climate. We probably are only allowed to emit something like 400 or 500 more of these units all together going over the next few centuries. Now that assumes that nothing, nothing's released from these reservoirs. If, the 100, if 100 petagrams of this is released because of warming effects on peat or permafrost, and then, what, then the allowed resource that we're allowed to release is even less. And in fact, one might even wonder if the warming we're setting in motion already might be sufficient to trigger the release of 400, in, in which case we're already committed to dangerous climate interference based on, based on the present emission. So this is an area that needs some attention. I'm going to... They're not maximum, they're best estimates. Okay, so yeah, they could potentially be a little higher. The plant is pretty well determined. The soils is a bit of a squishy number because it depends how deep you go and it's a little bit hard to survey soils at great depth. And these numbers keep jumping around a little bit, but these are the latest estimates. Finally, um, this shows an example of what 
just putting in a graphic form what I just said in the last slide, and that is that here's, a, here's an example of a 450 stabilization scenario going into the future. That's this dashed curve here. And this is based on a climate carbon model that takes account of feedbacks somewhat speculatively going into the future, and it shows how much more we might have to cut and what kind of ranges might be involved uh, in order to keep it if these feedbacks, that is the warming effects on, say, the land pools, kick in in the future. And this, some of these curves dip negative. That is, some of the extreme scenarios we actually go, have to go into a mode where instead of releasing CO2 into the atmosphere, we actually have to take it out to keep it from getting up to 450. So that's in the realm of possibilities here. So finally, in summary, the 50 years of CO2 observations established the reality of rising CO2. This is a fact. It's one of the hardest facts about the system. And it really anchors our concerns about this problem. The magnitude of the sinks are constrained by the CO2 and the oxygen trends, as well as other data. Our present knowledge of the sinks establishes that large cuts in emissions are required to stabilize CO2. At the cutting edge of science, even larger cuts may be required if sinks are perturbed by a warming planet. So this is an active area of research, but there's an asymmetry in our uncertainty here. It's much more likely that as we get more information, we'll see that we have to cut more rather than have to cut less. So thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to uh, try to show you some lessons from uh, our understanding of the way the carbon cycle on Earth works, both in the deep past and also from observations of uh, the present day, and, and how this informs uh, the, the question of what we have to do in order to avoid dangerous climate change and, and things like that. So uh, I, I thank you all for coming, and I, I hope this is, is useful to you. So kind of re-going over what, what Ralph said, we have these uh, different carbon reservoirs as part of the carbon cycle, the, the atmosphere, the land, the ocean, and then fossil fuels. So these are units, the same units as Ralph used. Uh, I'm calling them gigatons, which is billion metric tons, but that's, it's the same, you know, he, he said billion metric tons, so it's the same thing. Um, and the human perturbation to that is to... Uh, take carbon from the fossil fuel reservoir and put it in the atmosphere and also to take uh, carbon from land by cutting down trees for agriculture and, and, and put it in the atmosphere. So we have these perturbation fluxes of, of carbon every year going into the atmosphere. And then the atmosphere, as Ralph showed you, is not rising as fast as it would if this was the only thing that was happening. What's happening is that the, uh, the carbon cycle is responding to our perturbation by uh, enhancing uptake of carbon from the atmosphere into the land uh, with some non-negligible rate and also by dissolving in the oceans at, at, at a significant rate. So to start with the land uptake first, I think the carbon cycle and, and paleoclimate is telling us that uh, ultimately the land is, is not going to keep helping us out here. That's 
that's, that's where we're going. The reason, one reason I say that is because most of the carbon on land is stored in soils, as Ralph showed. And this is a map of, of soil carbon concentration. And what you see is that all of the, the red colors are in the high latitudes. This is because when it's cold, the, the carbon, you know, the dead leaves and things like that break down very slowly. It's like a, a ham sandwich in your refrigerator. It lasts longer than if you have it out in the hot sun in the window or whatever. Uh, so if we turn the planet into a tropical paradise, we expect to have less carbon in, in these soils. Uh, another reason to think that, that, that land could start uh, uh, decreasing its, its carbon uptake comes from studies of carbon uh, in, in, in forests. So these are, this is from a, a study of two different forests in Europe, one in France and one in Italy. And you have uh, the black line is the carbon uptake in the year 2002, which is sort of a control year. And then in 2003, they had this massive heat wave, uh, which cut the rate of carbon uptake by uh, 50% in, in both cases. So the, the carbon cycle can respond quickly to changes in climate as well. I mean, this is just a, a stressful situation for the poor forests. Uh, and then thirdly, is that the reason that, that Ralph already pointed out, ultimately the land is going to be swamped by fossil fuels if we go there. There's you know, roughly 2,000 gigatons in the land, 5,000 gigatons in the fossil fuels, and so you know, if we put all of this into there, the land is going to run out of capability to, uh, to help us out. Uh, with respect to the ocean, um, the, the way that, that carbon is stored in the ocean depends very strongly on this chemistry of the carbonate buffer system, it's called. CO2 reacts with carbonate ion to make a bicarbonate ion. So this is the same chemistry that we have in our blood. We breathe in oxygen, we breathe out uh, CO2. For oxygen, it doesn't have any of this sort of chemistry. There's no buffer, there's no companion for it to run around with. And so for oxygen, biological beings had to, uh, had to, had to, had to invent hemoglobin to carry oxygen from our lungs you know, to our cells. But CO2, we don't have to worry about hemoglobin because we have this, this buffer system. The ocean has the same thing. And as a result of this buffer system, the ocean stores a lot of carbon, 38,000 gigatons of, of carbon in the ocean is because of this buffer system. So the amount of carbon that the buffer can hold depends on the amount of carbonate ion, the CO3 minus minus, that's there for the CO2 to react with. As the CO2 concentration goes up, that changes the chemistry of the water. This is called ocean acidification. CO2 is an acid. If you acidify the water, that means you decrease the amount of this carbonate ion that's available for the CO2 to react with. And so... Uh, the ability of seawater to hold more CO2 gets weaker as this buffer gets used up. It's a finite capacity of, 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 uh, of the seawater to hold carbon dioxide. Then there are also recent studies that seem to suggest that the uptake of CO2 into the oceans may be slowing even more than the, the, the acidification uh, wiping out the, the buffer system would, would suggest. So um, if the ocean circulation and biology were staying the same, uh, we would expect the uptake of CO2 into the southern ocean 
to follow this red curve here. So uh, here is zero, and if the number is less than zero, that means in this figure that CO2 is going from the air into the ocean. And the Southern Ocean is an important place for getting CO2 into the ocean because that's where the deep ocean is in contact with the atmosphere. That's how you get CO2 from the surface into the deep ocean, which is where you want it to go. So uh, this is what we would expect is for the CO2 invasion into the ocean to, to, to increase because there's more CO2 in the air. So you put more in the air, more will dissolve in the water, and you can kind of shove it in there faster, uh, which is what seems like it's mostly happening according to the data that Ralph showed. But what they uh, observed based on looking at the concentrations of CO2 in air around the world, they try to figure out how much Okay, so the air is blowing over the ocean, and you measure the CO2 here, and you measure the CO2 there, and if there's less CO2 after it gets to the other side than you started with, then you assume it's going into the ocean. That's kind of the idea of this sort of study. And what they found was that the, the, the rate of CO2 going into the ocean has been sort of flat since, since sort of the 80s, rather than increasing the way we would expect because of the, the higher CO2 concentrations. There's a similar sort of study for the North Atlantic, which found... Uh, changes in the circulation of the ocean uh, have uh, apparently, which is also what's going on here, apparently are, are impeding the CO2 invading into the ocean. So if you warm the surface or if you make it fresher by, by changing the rate of uh, rainfall, uh, you, you make the ocean stagnate. And if you're not making water go down into the deep as quick, then maybe you're not letting CO2 go into the deep ocean as quickly either. Uh, a, a third thing that I can bring to the, the table with respect to these carbon sinks comes from the behavior of CO2 in the natural climate cycles in the past. So this is the, the, the CO2 record from the uh, Vostok ice core and the temperature record going back also. So you see lower CO2 in, times, in glacial times when it's colder and then higher CO2 in interglacial. So the CO2 today actually... Uh, is up right around, you know, 380 or something. Uh, that, that's not on this, this plot. But there's this sort of loop of cause and effect between global temperature and CO2 on these time scales. Uh, the way that the system seems to be working is that the, the progression of climate between glacial and interglacial is... is uh, or originally, you know, prodded by variations in Earth's orbit around the sun. And that affects the, the temperature of the Earth. And then somehow the climate system then tells the carbon cycle, so if you get a little bit of warming from a change in the orbit, that tells the, the carbon cycle to put more CO2 in the atmosphere. And then the, the rise in CO2 in the atmosphere causes uh, an additional warming. So the CO2 in the past has been acting like a an amplifying feedback to the, the relatively weak uh, climate forcing from, from the Earth's orbit. Another example which, from the past which works exactly in the same way is the Little Ice Age, which is around the year 1700, 1600s. Uh, that, that was caused not by the Earth's orbit around the sun, but actually uh, by the intensity of the sun. They know that from the, the number of sunspots. There was a period called the Maunder Minimum of about 40 years when there were no sunspots at all. And what we think we understand about the sun is that means the sun was a little bit dimmer, caused things to get cooler, and the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere dipped a little bit, and that caused it to get even more cooler. So 
the past climate changes were, were sort of forced externally through the temperature, and that affected the CO2. What we're doing now is we're sort of pushing it from the opposite direction. We're, we're taking CO2 and putting it into the atmosphere, and that's causing the, the Earth's temperature to rise. And so the question is, ultimately, will the carbon cycle begin to push back if there could be carbon cycle feedbacks like were uh, found in the past that could cause atmospheric CO2 to rise because of the warming, which could then lead to amplified warming. Now, as Ralph said, this is not happening today. Today, the natural world is taking up CO2. But if you look at the world the way a paleoclimatologist does, you think, well, maybe this is a possibility for the deeper future. A third question I wanted to address uh, by telling you about the carbon cycle is a question of how long global warming will last. Uh, this has been a conceptual problem for uh, uh, several decades. The, the IPCC reports up to the 2001 report had uh, a table in the summary for policymakers that showed a number of properties of the various greenhouse gases, including an atmospheric lifetime. And for CO2, it had a, a value of 5 to 200 years as an atmospheric lifetime of CO2. And this is, at its most charitable, you could say this is, a, this is an oversimplification. What actually happens when CO2 is released to the system, to the atmosphere, is uh, the CO2 goes up during the, the era when CO2, when, when, when CO2 is being put into the atmosphere. After it stops being released, after you stop burning fossil fuels, the CO2 drops fairly quickly initially, uh, so most of it goes away by, by dissolving in the oceans, about maybe three-quarters of it. But when you put CO2 into the oceans, it uses up that carbonate ion. It, 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 it depletes the, the buffer chemistry of the ocean. And so you're left with this long tail of CO2. So some of it goes away on a timescale of thousands of years. This timescale goes from, from 2000 AD today to the year 40,000 AD in the future. Uh, and even then, the CO2 hasn't all gone away. Even then, there's still this, this remaining, this leftover of the CO2 that we've released. Some of it goes away by dissolving, by, by reacting with calcium carbonate. So calcium carbonate is like Tums. If you have an acid stomach, you react it, you, you take a Tums, and it neutralizes the acid. But even after that is done, there's still a leftover CO2 that has to await these very slow chemical reactions with igneous rocks. And so that takes hundreds of thousands of years for this last 10 or 12 percent of the CO2 to go away. So the, uh, the, this problem in the, the IPCC was, was corrected in the 2007 report released last year. Uh, they, took, they got rid of that, that table. Because of that table, all the books about global warming, everything, if, you, if it ever came up what the lifetime of global warming was, it was always a few centuries, and that was just, that had no basis. What they now say is, you know, that, that some of it goes away on some time scale, and then 20% may stay in the atmosphere for many thousands of years. So this has now got some basis in, in, in what we think. Okay, so one thing we can draw from that trajectory of what happens to CO2 is uh, a, a limit to how much CO2 can be emitted and, and avoid dangerous climate change. So I'm going to make three assumptions, three assumptions uh, to, to, uh, in this calculation. One is we're going to say a, a temperature change of two degrees Celsius is a dangerous temperature change. Now, this is a number kind of pulled out of the air, and we'll, we'll change it in a second, but two degrees C would be warmer than the Earth has been in, in millions of years. 
Um, so, you know, this is, this is often sort of floated as a, as a danger limit. Another uh, assumption is that the airborne fraction, this is Ralph's 57%, 60% here, you know, it's the same, same number. That's true today, and it will be true throughout the fossil fuel era. So it, be, it would be true at the year 2100 if we continued on business as usual. And then the third ingredient is how much the climate warms from CO2. That's a parameter called the climate sensitivity, the, or delta T2x, the amount of warming that you get from doubling CO2. And so I'm using a value of 3 degrees C. That's kind of a middle of the road. The answer you get from those three assumptions is that about 700 gigatons of carbon is the, the total that can be released in order to avoid warming more than that 2 degrees C number. So what is that? Uh, we've already released about 300 gigatons of, of carbon, and so that leaves us about 400 to go. So one thing to compare that to is the business-as-usual uh, forecast, which would, take, leave, uh, would release about 1,600 gigatons by the end of the year, so, or by the end of the century. So uh, this is, you know, one quarter of business-as-usual would get us to this two-degree C uh, warming danger limit. So... I feel like the, the, the guy standing watch on the Titanic who sees the iceberg and he goes to the captain. And it, this is not very far away, this, this iceberg. Uh, another way to look at it is that uh, the reserves of oil and gas are actually much lower than the amount of coal that's available. And they're, they're comparable to about 400 gigatons. So a conceptual way to see how, you know, what this means is you know, we could just go and burn all the oil and gas we can find, but just go cold turkey on coal today and forever, and that would kind of do it. The big question really is what happens to that coal? There's not enough oil in the ground to, uh, to really cook the planet. Now, 2 degrees C is still a pretty aggressive amount of warming. Uh, you can argue quite plausibly that 1 degree C is dangerous as well. That would still be warmer than the Earth has been in uh, a long time. The last time it was uh, one degree warmer was 120,000 years ago, and sea level was four or five meters higher than today. So if we want one degree C to be a danger threshold, uh, we're basically already there. The Earth has warmed about 0.6 or 0.7 degrees already, and it takes a while for the ocean to warm up. So it takes a while for the climate to fully respond to changes in CO2. So we expect that ultimately the CO2 we have already released will warm the planet by this one degree C. So if this was some new process and somebody was writing an environmental impact statement and saying it's going to warm the planet by one degree C, there's no way that that would be considered safe. So the long tail of the CO2 means that there's uh, going to be warming that persists for long into the future as well. So 2000, that's sort of, comp that's, that's sort of our business as usual. That would leave the, the planet three degrees C a thousand years from now. Burning all the coal would leave the planet 3 degrees C 10,000 years from now. So how big is 3 degrees C? Uh, this is, uh, 3 degrees C is, is, is large. This is uh, reconstructed temperatures of the Earth uh, going back through the last uh, 1,000 years or 1,300 years, I guess now. Uh, this is actually just the northern hemisphere. Uh, so um, you, you see there's today and... and there's sort of medieval, uh, little ice age and medieval warm time, and, and the temperature scale here, there's a half a degree and minus a half a degree. Three degrees C is, is way outside the range of, of, of uh, what civilized uh, mankind has seen. So you may read people say the medieval warm time was a nice time to be 
you know, growing wine in England, and so warming is good for us. But that's a sort of a uh, bait and switch. This, this warming that we're talking about in the future is nothing like, you know, the magnitude of the medieval warm time. Another very concrete reason to worry about that long tail of CO2 is uh, sea level. So what I'm showing here is the um, sea level in the past in meters on this axis as a function of changes in Earth's temperature from today. So the last glacial time was maybe six degrees colder than today, and sea level was 120 meters lower. Time before that, about three million years ago, there wasn't much of any ice in the northern hemisphere, and the temperature of the Earth was a few degrees warmer than today. And then going way back in time, there are times when there was no ice on Earth at all. Now, when you start thinking about you know, geological time frames like this, the whole concept of sea level gets a little dodgy because the, the land surface is bouncing around like a, like a raft on, on you know, wavy waters. And so the sea level, if you find some ancient beach from 40 million years ago, you don't really know what elevation that was relative to the you know, center of the Earth and all that. So what I have done here is just taken the 70 meters, which is how much the, uh, the sea level would rise today if we melted all the ice and said the Eocene was a time when there was no ice. So if we were in that climate, we would have temp uh, sea level you know, 70 meters higher. And that, you know, it was warmer than today. Now, in contrast to that correlation in, from the geologic record between sea level and temperature, here's the forecast for the year 2100 from IPCC, three degrees C of warming and, and about a half meter of, of sea level rise. And the reason why this is not on that, that dashed line there is because of the sort of implicit assumption that it takes longer than 100 years to melt an ice sheet. But if the CO2 has this long tail and the climate can be many degrees warmer than today for thousands of years, that's plenty of time to melt ice sheets. Uh, and so we're talking about um, the possibility of, of tens of meters of sea level rise ultimately. Now, um, one thing that's not very well appreciated about the IPCC sea level forecast is that they, they, they were unable to uh, include the possibility of the ice flowing faster into the ocean in response to the warming. The ice sheet models are just not uh, able to simulate some of the things that we observe happening in Greenland and Antarctica today. The ice is flowing faster in the summer than in the winter, and there are these, you can, you can hear seismic events of the ice rumbling, and it happens more in the summer than in the winter, and it's been accelerating in the past couple of years. So, you know, the next IPCC report in, in five years may have some sort of a sea level forecast that includes this possibility of the ice sheets collapsing. We know it has happened in the past, and so it's, it's certainly possible in the future. But even if it, the ice, real ice sheets melt as sluggishly as the models do, we have lots of time uh, in, in, with that long tail of the CO2 to, to melt them. So here's a sort of a, a, a scenario. Let's say that, that, that we and our children decide to burn 5,000 gigatons of carbon. That's all of the coal. And let's say that that, that correlation with the past uh, held up. And so ultimately, maybe thousands of years from now, sea level rises by, by maybe 50 meters. That's, that's uh, home to a large percentage of the, the you know, people on, on the Earth. Uh, and if you do the math, it works out to every American ultimately inundates about 1,000 square feet of, of land. Again, maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. So I've made three points, and I'll just summarize them quickly. 
Uh, one is that the carbon cycle is telling us that the natural sinks for CO2 will eventually diminish. The capacity is not infinite, and there is this long tail, and there's no question about that. Uh, also, lesson from the past, the carbon cycle tends to act in the past as an amplifier of climate change. And so that's not good news for us either. Avoiding dangerous uh, anthropogenic interference in the climate system, which is what the you know, IPCC and Kyoto Protocol is all about. Uh, if we take 2 degrees C as a dangerous temperature limit, that means that we ha can only emit about one quarter of the business as usual uh, scenario to the, to, the, to the next century. And we are already committed to about one degree C of warming, which is... I think a reasonable, another reason, you can make a reasonable argument that that in itself is, is also dangerous. And then finally, there's this long tail of the CO2. Uh, global warming is not a century timescale issue. It will last for, you know, essentially forever. Um, and sea level, because of that, could ultimately rise 100 times more than, than the forecast for the coming century. So it's a much larger problem if you stand back in time and look at it. So, you know, we're all going to be gone in 10,000 years anyway. Why do we care about altering, altering the climate at that time? Uh, I would say that people care about nuclear waste, which has a long lifetime, and, you know, they don't have any reason to care about that either, but they seem to. So that would be a reason to care about this. Thank you. I tried to phrase this so you couldn't just answer yes or no. <laughs> um, so this is uh, for Dr. Keeling, but either of you are more than welcome to answer. Um, and I'm wondering about those wiggles that, you know, tell what they can tell you. I, I work for a Department of Energy, and I work on energy technologies, and, and uh, I'm interested in, you know, solutions. So what, what I'm wondering is what can the size of the wiggles tell you about the potential to use increased, uh, you know, biomass or some kind of like carbon sequestration to reduce CO2 concentration as part of a strategy to, you know, use carbon negative strategies. This on? Okay. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I think you're talking about the seasonal cycle. What we call the, an, the annual cycle or seasonal cycle in carbon dioxide. Yes, I, just to reiterate that, those cycles are a reflection of the, uh, the, the seasonal growth and decay of vegetation in the northern hemisphere. So they are, in fact, a, an indication of that the natural system has some leverage. Uh, that is, the plants and so forth have some leverage. Uh, and the question had to do with what does that tell us about biomass yeah. for fuels? Right. I mean, I mean, fundamentally, the, the, I mean, the fundamental science of that is certainly feasible. Plants can grow and take CO2 out of the atmosphere, and in doing so, they can create fuels, and that can propel things. In a sense, civilization lived on wood for a long time as the primary fuel, so we're really talking about a high-tech version of that. Um, so I think it, it, as, a, as a sort of heuristic proof of that principle, it works. I think the connection is a little bit weak in the sense that the numbers don't emerge from the CO2 story as to how... Numbers 
energy as a whole, and I don't want to get into too many details here, but the um, fossil fuel burning right now is up around, well, we'll soon approach 9 or 10 billion metric tons of carbon per year. We hope it won't do that, but it certainly looks like it's headed in that direction. And the global land net primary production, that is the total amount of biomass here is something like 60, some number like that. Uh, that's the whole planet, and that's discounting what the plants need for their own maintenance. But they leave behind them at the end of the year an excess of that magnitude that's broken down by bacteria. So if, we're, if we were going to offset all of fossil fuels by, by growing plants, we'd have to commit a large fraction of the total world's photosynthetic capacity. Um, so you can see that we're really talking about an awful lot of biomass burning. Oh, I keep toggling it? Okay, sorry. Um, so I, I think the bottom line there is that it can make a, a significant contribution. It's unlikely to, to get as far as solving the bulk of the problem. It's going to take a spectrum of different technologies, that being perhaps an important one. About the expected uh, reduction in the uptake, slowing of the uptake from 57, uh, what, one, what are the models, what would the, the models show in, in terms of how, when that starts and where you would see it first? And have you seen any signs of that, I mean, uh, at all, or, or, or if they forecast still? Well, I showed you the, um, the, the results from the Southern Ocean uptake, the La Cara study. Um, those kinds of analyses are, I, I sort of wait for those to be replicated, the, the, the studies where you, you invert the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere and figure out sources and sinks. Um, I mean, there were several studies all saying the same thing, but um, to, to know for sure whether that has started happening today or not, I, I would take a wait-and-see approach. In terms of forecasting for the future, um, I, I don't think we're, we're, we, we understand things well enough to do that. We can't explain to you why the CO2 rose from the glacial value to the interglacial value, even though we've known about it for 20 years. So to forecast the system for the future is something that I don't think we have the ability to do. Yeah. Um, some of the models suggest that by the middle of this century, the land sink may turn into a source due to warming. Those are speculative models. Uh, but it's reasonable, so it's a concern, and it's a legitimate concern that this, the things could weaken on about that time frame based on warming. So something like 30, 40 years from now, we might see different behavior in the Mauna Loa record showing up graphically as a major contribution. That budget I put together might look quite a bit different. Um, now, as to whether we see anything right now, the bottom line is we don't see anything very clearly. And I deliberately did not try to dig into a statistical analysis of these data in detail. If you look at them very carefully, you can possibly see some weak indications of climate effects emerging uh, on timescales like a decade. There's the, and, and we do see the uh, El Nino effect on CO2 that I briefly mentioned in my talk. El Nino events are periods of a year or so or six months when the planet's a bit warmer on average. And you do see carbon dioxide being released during those periods. It's probably more related to drought than warming because the El Nino events tend to be uh, coordinated or synchronized with uh, uh, 
drying patterns, particularly in Asia and parts of Africa. Um, and we do see CO2 going up somewhat more rapidly during those periods. So we do see indications in all parts of the record of so-called positive feedbacks between warming and CO2 buildup. We see them on El Nino. We probably see it, saw them in the medieval cold, uh, uh, medieval cold period. Uh, I guess it's called Little Ice Age. That's the word I was trying to come up with. And we see it on glacial and glacial cycles. So there's pretty good evidence that the feedbacks go in that direction and, and will play out that way in the future. We just don't know how big they're going to be. Because you went through it quickly, but one of your um, slides, you showed what looked like a slight the last couple of years with the 57% with the CO2 slightly being higher than the, the line. I mean, very, almost imperceptible. And you said, that, you know, we, don't, we can't tease anything out there. But has it been over that sort of projected line for the last few years? Uh, that graph was as up-to-date as I could make it. So... Uh, I think I think I had data from this fall on that curve, so uh, there's not much to show that isn't there already. So the answer is there's nothing terribly shocking in the last year or two that's happened. I think you may have partly answered the question I had, and I was going to ask uh, you, Dr. Archer, about the Wakari study in the Southern Ocean. Uh, you showed that graph showing results saying it had no significant uptake since 1980, I think, was that result. Uh, so my first question, I think you've answered, how robust is that study? Secondly, if it hasn't been uptaking any CO2 for 27 years, yet I think I heard one or both of you say it's a very important part of the ocean for uptaking CO2. Well, where is the important part then? The Southern Ocean hasn't been uptaking CO2 for 27 years, but overall we're uptaking about 2 billion tons per year in the ocean. Where, where is it going on? Where are the other important parts of the ocean? And then how well do we thus understand the whole ocean system? as a sink. I think I heard uh, Dr. Keeling say we understood it pretty well. That study seems to throw that into some, some dispute. Yeah, Ralph and I were talking earlier today about this. Um, in general, ocean carbon cycle models are very sort of steadfast and true about how much CO2 they take up. So you can clobber them with an El Nino and they don't seem to, to mind. But uh, the, the information that you back out of, of real measurements, like what Ralph me makes, uh, seems to indicate that the ocean is a more uh, temperamental CO2 uh, sink. So if it's not going into the southern ocean, I mean, presumably it's, as the CO2 concentration in the air goes up, that does increase the concentration that wants to be in seawater. So some of it will just dissolve in surface ocean water uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a given thing. The question is how much do you replenish that surface ocean water with water from the deep ocean, uh, which hasn't seen the atmosphere yet and so can take up more CO2? So it would almost seem to me, the, the thrust of your question, it would almost seem to me that if the Southern Ocean had just stopped since 1980 as a CO2 uh, absorber, that that would be more obvious in the Mauna Loa curve. So I, I agree with this, the, the sense of... of, of skepticism that may be politely behind your question, and, and I share it. I wait for that you know, result to be confirmed. But even if there isn't a, a slowing of carbon uptake by the ocean by, by some circulation change such as required by that, that, that data, it's certain that the ocean uptake will slow as the buffer gets, gets used up. That one you can predict easy as falling off a log. There's, solid part, you mentioned the calcium carbonate, that's not reacting quick enough? That's, that's slow. That takes, that takes a long time. 
So you can measure the change in the carbon chemistry of the surface ocean and it's tracking the atmosphere and the carbonate ion concentration is going down and all of that is non-controversial at all. I'll, try, I'll add one point to that. I'll try to make it brief. Uh, the ocean uh, pre-industrially was in balance with the atmosphere, though as a whole it wasn't a source or sink, and now we know it's a sink. Uh, that's pretty securely established. Uh, just because it was not a sink or a source pre-industrially doesn't mean that it was exactly in balance everywhere. And in fact, the, 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 the wisdom would be that the Southern Ocean was naturally a source offset by sinks elsewhere. So carbon dioxide was coming out of the ocean in some places and going in in others as sort of a natural cycle in and out of the ocean. So uh, the fact that the Southern Ocean showed up as zero on that plot means that it went from being a source pre-industrially down to being in balance. So that actually is a perturbation in the direction of more uptake for the ocean as a whole. This has to do with perturbations and steady state, and I don't want to get into the details here too much, but it doesn't prove that the Southern Ocean isn't helping take up CO2 just because it was zero, because it's offsetting a natural source. So when I read a news article on that, it had the opposite conclusion, that the Southern Ocean is not taking up CO2 anymore. That's what I read in the paper. And that's what made that particular study a little bit confusing for people here on the Hill. It's very hard to distill these things down to a sentence or two. I'm Jay Gellich from the Pew Center on Global Climate Change. Thank you both. The carbon cycle, I think, is one of the like least well-resolved issues in, in global change, so this is great, and thanks, Tony, and the AMS. Um, so I, I would like a little help conceptualizing the carbon cycle with regard to emissions. If, if currently we have 60% um, of, of emissions being taken up and 40% and left in the atmosphere, my understanding about correctly, then it would imply that if we simply, if we could immediately reduce our emissions by 40%, then concentration should stay stable for all time. 60%. By 60%. Thank you. Then, then concentrations in the atmosphere should, should stay stable for all time, assuming nothing else in the, in the cycle changes. Is, is this correct? And um, just, just appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, the 57% number, uh, the airborne fraction, meant that... Uh, if, you could, if we could cut emissions by 57%, we'd cut out the equivalent of what's staying in the air, and so the system would presumably then be in balance between the remaining 43% we emit and the sinks that account for 43%. So the system would then stop rising at that point. Now, what would happen is the sinks would slowly weaken as, the, as they come into equilibrium with the air, so we'd have to cut more and then we'd have to cut more. So we, in order to stop CO2 in its tracks today, we have to cut by 57% immediately, and then over the next few decades, we have to slowly cut more and more. So, so there is a change in the sinks over time, so that this is where the, there's a discrete amount we can finally emit, which is what David said in his presentation. Thanks a lot. I just wanted to say one thing. The 57% uh, is the fraction of the fossil fuel CO2 that's still in the atmosphere. And that's, we know the fossil fuel release very precisely, and we know the atmosphere very precisely, so we can say very precisely 57%. You've seen that. But if we take the total amount of CO2 that we release to the atmosphere, in other words, if we include the land biosphere change, then the fraction that stays in the atmosphere changes by, by a little bit. And 
it gets dicier because the number isn't known as well because it's not known as well how much is being deforested. But in that case, you do see a trend with time in the atmospheric fraction decreasing. So you can read about that in uh, chapter uh, six or seven I, seven, I think, of the IPCC report that has a, a table of that. Uh, but it's, like I say, it's a, it's a dicey number because you don't know how much carbon is being released to the atmosphere by deforestation. But you could argue that that is the total CO2 burden on the atmosphere from people, is deforestation plus the fossil fuels. Hi, Richard Frankel. I'm, I'm at GAO, but I'm up here as an old hemoglobin chemist. Uh, a small correction. Uh, there's something called the Bohr effect discovered by Niels's father that, in fact, blood carries about 70% of the CO2 back to the lungs from the tissues in exchange for the oxygen it gives up. There's a reciprocity on the big molecule between those two. The, the question I wanted to ask, though, is about the ocean uptake question. Uh, what you're talking about is titrating the carbonate-bicarbonate buffer. Given the whole ocean, that is an immense system, and the question is how far you are along in that titration, because if you're sort of just starting into it, there is a huge capacity. If, on the other hand, if it's gotten well past the, the halfway point and it's starting down the lower side, you know, titration curves go like this, and if it's down the lower side, then we're in trouble. So where do you think it stands on that status? Well, well, first off, does hemoglobin carry CO2? Is that what you said? Oh, yeah. Huh. About 70% wow. as much CO2 from the lungs, from the tissues back to the lungs in exchange for the oxygen it carries in. Okay, well, I stand corrected on that then. Thank you. Um, it's made such a good story, though. I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> really sad to hear it. Uh, on your, your question about the capacity of the ocean, uh, if you add up the total amount of carbonate ion in the ocean, it comes to about 2,000 gigatons of carbon, something like that. So the, we've, we've burned 300, and 150 of it is in the ocean or so, so that means we're sort of like, what is that, 7% of the way toward you know, using up all of the, the, the carbonate ion. Now, of course, in a titration, you get more reaction at the beginning part than at the end, so it's not you know, exactly like a, a speedometer or something, but, but um, the, the, the buffer capacity of the ocean is, is, is still large compared to what has happened so far. In However, it's... In principle, there is a lot of capacity left. Yes, but um, when you, uh, it, it's, regardless of the amount of CO2 that you release, there is a sort of a constant fraction that remains in the atmosphere after the CO2 equilibrates with the ocean. The fraction increases as the amount of CO2 that you burn increases. So for how much we've burned already, a thousand years from now, only 15% will be in the atmosphere. If we were to burn 5,000 gigatons and wait a thousand years, 30% or something, 35 would be in the atmosphere, and that's the effect of using up that carbonate ion buffer. Hi, Joe Whitty, a TV forecaster. I often try to explain these uh, concepts to, uh, say, junior high age, so if you can put your mind in that frame. Um, try to, I try to explain to them sort of the path of maybe 10 carbon dioxide molecules leaving a car exhaust and 
Where does it go in the atmosphere? What's the vertical profile roughly? And is there a difference between the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere? We can certainly see that with the foliage. And then the other last question is, it seems to me that business as usual um, is pretty calm and not taking into the developing world, China and India explosion that's coming on. And I was just curious, I'm sure it's factored in there, but I'm just curious why it isn't a larger blip. Okay, I'll, I'll answer the, the first half of that. Um, the, the atmosphere mixes quite rapidly, and that was really the, the underpinnings of my father's discovery that carbon dioxide was fairly constant, and it's fairly constant because the air is pretty churned up. It's pretty mixed up, and so it becomes fairly homogeneous, but it's not mixing perfectly fast, and uh, it certainly doesn't mix on a month between here and New Zealand. So the breath right now is not going to be in New Zealand a month from now, but a large fraction of it might be there a year from now. In fact, in about a year, it's sort of mostly homogenized between the hemispheres. So it's a good rough number as it takes about a year to get between the hemispheres. And the mixing within a hemisphere that is air north of the equator, mixing with other air north of the equator, is more like a, a, a couple months. So if that puts some numbers out. I'll let... You, you want to... The, uh, handle the other part. I'm not an economist, but m my understanding of the business as usual scenario is that it does attempt to take into account all the various economies of the world and, and, and what they're expected to do. However, the um, scenarios that were uh, that were developed five or ten years ago have been exceeded by reality since then. So there, uh, we're looking at a, a plot this morning of. Uh, the A1F1 scenario from the 2001 IPCC report. This was like the the the, the hitting the fan kind of scenario, uh, and it was uh, criticized as being sort of alarmist, you know, deliberately alarmist at the time. Uh, but the the reality has in fact exceeded that, and and so you know lessons from that we can take. One quick question: Is there transfer between the troposphere and the stratosphere? Okay, yes. How long does it take a CO2 molecule to make it into the stratosphere? Uh, well, that uh, takes a couple years, maybe up to five years. It depends on how high up you go. Um, but the, the coupling between the uh, upper stratosphere and the ground is something like about five years. So a way to think about that is if you released some toxin way up at the top of the stratosphere that would kill everyone on the planet, how long can you live comfortably? Well, the answer would be a couple of years maybe. Brace at the U.S. Department of Energy. Um, one of the positive feedback forest shows uh, we hear about sometime has to do with methane hydrates and the potential release of the methane hydrates is, uh, in sediments as things form up. And, and, and those are said to be the biggest fossil resource on Earth is trapped in methane hydrates. I wonder what you all think of that possibility and what, was that included at all in your major carbon pool uh, chart? Uh. I hope David can answer this better than I can because I don't know too much about this subject. I'll confess that. It was not included on my slide. Um, but little I've looked at the literature suggests that the actual reserves of methane hydrates themselves are rather poorly known. And some of the newer estimates bring it down to a level of the order of 1,000 petagrams. And the previous numbers were around 10,000, which would actually dwarf fossil, the, the fossil fuel reserve. But I don't think this is very well known. The impression I have is that the... Uh, Methane hydrate is mostly deep enough in sediments not to be perturbed very much 
on the time scales of, that are primarily of interest. But I, I admit I don't know much about it. I'm going to hand it over to David if you can say anything. Uh, so even if the, the amount of methane in the hydrates is sort of on the lower end of the range of estimates, which I believe is also uh, probably the way to bet at this point, there's still enough methane down there that if by some nightmare scenario you were able to release some fraction of it, say 10% to the atmosphere all at once, it would be just a climatic apocalypse. It would be like increasing the CO2 concentration by a factor of 10 or something. Uh, they seem intrinsically unstable. This is ice that floats in water, so they're held at the bottom of the ocean by the fact that they're in mud. If they were to release them, if you just take the world and give it a good shake, this stuff would all float to the surface and, and all this methane would come out. So, you know, it seems intrinsically very unstable. Uh, but no one has thought of a way to get that much methane out sort of quickly. So you want to do it on a time scale which is, you know, of a few years because methane in the atmosphere decays to carbon dioxide in about 10 years. So if you release it sort of in a slow, ongoing way, uh, that would tend to increase the amount of methane in the atmosphere in a sort of steady state, but it wouldn't be the, the real disaster movie kind of scenario. The, the Arctic is sort of a special case for hydrates because the water column is colder, so that means that there's hydrate located more shallow in the water column, and also the warming is more intense in high latitudes because ice melts and that absorbs sunlight. It's called the ice albedo feedback. And so you already see more warming in Alaska than you do here in D.C., for example. Um, but even so, uh, the, the best guess is that we're talking about an increase in the sort of chronic rate of methane emission to the atmosphere. And so an increase in the, the, the concentration of methane in the air. Methane in the air is kind of a difficult thing to predict. It was going up until about 1993. And then it just sort of stopped going up. And so there were stories about uh, fixing leaky oil or, you know, gas pipelines in the, the former eastern block or, or, or something like that, causing the, the CO2, the methane to stop rising. So it's not clear that we can forecast what will happen with methane. The hydrates could start to go. I, I would say that um, uh, the frozen peats in permafrost soils are, are more of a, uh, are, are an analogous threat. So they, when, they, when they thaw, they start to release methane and, and CO2 to the atmosphere in a sort of analogous way. David, let me jump in with one second. If you had the methane, um, a release of methane, you've got an interesting um, dual issue. In other words, you have two different lifetimes of gases. It, and yet methane converts to CO2 over a relatively short period of time. So can you walk us through that kind of thing? If you had a big release, Ralph, would you see it on your curve of methane? Because I guess not, because you wouldn't be measuring methane. You're measuring CO2. But then that gets to the fact that how long does it take to convert to CO2? So the methane is a transient gas in the atmosphere, whereas the CO2 accumulates. So in model simulations that we've done, if you begin to release more methane to the atmosphere and you do that for some amount of thousands of years, uh, you get an increase in the methane concentration of the air, which drives climate to change. But you also get an increase in the CO2 from the methane, which accumulates. Now, methane is about 30 times more powerful molecule per molecule than CO2. So 
you would initially think that it's the methane that's the most important thing, but since CO2 accumulates in the air, what we found is that the, in our model, the climate forcing from the accumulating, uh, the accumulating CO2 concentration is comparable to the, the climate forcing from, the, uh, from the, the, the transient methane. So both gases turn out to be important. The time constant there is 10 years or so for the conversion of um, methane to CO2 by oxidation in the air. So if you release methane, it'll waft around in the air for about 10 years, and some, something like a decade later, it'll been turned into a CO2 molecule. Ten years after, yeah. Hi, my name is Naomi Lundberg, and I work at the National Marine Fisheries Service. And I just wanted to return for a moment to the topic of how much carbon dioxide can the ocean absorb, and where are we from reaching the end of the titration curve. And I thought maybe we could talk for a minute about some of the biological effects that we might see much sooner than, than the end of that curve, where we have organisms un unable to form calcium shells and we have all things like corals and calcifying organisms dissolving in our ocean and I'm not sure where that is in that time frame but I thought maybe we could talk about that for a moment. Yeah um, we didn't talk about ocean acidification here much at all. The emphasis in our session was on CO2 buildup but it's important to emphasize that there is another CO2 problem, and that is that as the oceans take up CO2, the water becomes more acidic. The uh, ability of shells to the organisms to precipitate uh, calcium carbonate shells is diminished. Uh, the CO2 itself has probably direct physiological effects that are not a consequence of the acid. There may be some effects on fish metabolism I've read about. Uh, so there's a whole host of potentially significant environmental impacts that we have barely started looking at. That's the emphasis I would put on this. Now, the corals, I'm not an expert on this, but what I've, what I've read about the combined double whammy of warming and acidification look like they're in big trouble. And that's the impression I have, but I'm, I'm not really an expert on it. Do you want to add anything to this, David? Uh, a couple of things. One, um, there, there's an example of this sort of analogous to fossil fuels from the geologic record 55 million years ago called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum where CO2 was released from some source, it's not clear what, uh, and then there was a, 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 it acidified the ocean just like it's projected to do in the future. And there's this sort of clay layer in a lot of the sediment cores from there where all the calcium carbonate dissolved away. And there was extinction of uh, various calcium carbonate secreting organisms at that time. Um, most, the, 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 the CO2 changes in the last, uh, million years where we have detailed records in ice cores, the CO2 concentration changed on a time scale of thousands of years, which is different from what's happening today where CO2 is changing in 100 years. So if CO2 changes slowly, the calcium carbonate can dissolve and keep up with the acidification from the CO2. So it's like, you know, you take Tums as you're eating your, your, your rich dinner and it, it neutralizes the acid in your stomach as you go. Whereas uh, what's happening today is the CO2 is going up so quickly that the calcium carbonate can't keep up. So the amount of acidification that the ocean is going to endure uh, from fossil fuel CO2 is greater than it has endured 
in the last million years from the natural changes in CO2 because the, the neutralizing, the buffer just can't keep, the, the calcium carbonate can't, can't keep up. John Lewis, Terra Global Capital. Um, <clears throat> I was held up, so you may have already covered this, but um, uh, what would be your recommendation for those of us who work in and with tropical countries where increasingly um, uh, the countries are uh, asking about targets rather than telling what their targets are? What would be your reforestation recommendation as part of your 57% scenario moving forward? Or, so, and I apologize if you've already covered this. Well, it is possible that tropical forests are acting as a significant sink in ways that we don't understand. So cutting them down doesn't seem like a good thing to do if you don't quite know what they're good for. And it's a little bit analogous to the genetic diversity issue, maybe not as uh, profound as that. So... Uh, I think the first thing to try to do is to, is to reduce deforestation rates because the forests have a lot of value in a lot of different ways, and they could be acting as significant sinks. And certainly if you cut them down and burden them, you're turning that into a source. So there's some real leverage there, perhaps. But putting them back and cutting them down tend to be part of the same institutional process. So, uh, Oh, you're talking about uh, commercial logging and then regrowing forests. Well, sustainable forest management and buffer zone yeah. management are part of protecting existing forests. So uh, the economy of forestry is not only about forest protection, but about reforestation. And, and it, it helps to protect if there's pressure, policy pressure and economic pressure to reforest at the same time. If you can say this will help. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can say it probably will help some. I, I mean, in, in a sense, the... If, if it's important to realize that if you cut down a tree and you turn it into some structural material and then you regrow the forest, you actually took CO2 out of the air. So there's actually potential through forestry practice to realize a small net sink enhanced by human activities. Um, the issue in the tropics probably has as much to do with conservation and uh, biodiversity in that sense as it does to do with with carbon. So these two issues are mixed up in a complicated way, and, I, and I'm not an expert on the biodiversity issues, the size of these things, but I can see ways that you could actually enhance CO2 uptake by cutting tropical forests and being sure about regrowing them. Sorry, just would there be an order of magnitude if you could stop deforestation <clears throat> and get back to where we were 20 years ago, say? I mean, in the uh, IPCC Working Group 3 uh, writes a, a, a report on, on mitigation which means, you know, what does it take to avoid climate change? And they have, in the summary for policymakers, they have a table that tells uh, how much CO2 emissions could be changed within some dollar threshold of $100 per ton of CO2 or something like that from forestry as well as agriculture and, and, and lots of other uh, sort of sectors of the, the economy. So the bottom line message from that is that um, – since CO2 doesn't come from just one single activity, there's no one single cut that can solve the problem, but lots of different cuts from different sectors, such as what you're describing, uh, could be put together to, to, uh, to stop the CO2 rise. I don't remember what the number was from, from the, forest, the forestry uh, chapter, however. Uh, I could point you to that. 
Yeah. That, that, that if you email me later, but I don't know offhand. I want to put another spin on this. If we keep increasing the release from fossil fuel burning, we're up at like 8-something now, 9, 10, 11, 12 billion metric tons of carbon per year. We're swamping the system with carbon from fossil fuel CO2. So I think one thing to emphasize is the most urgent thing to pay attention to right now is to figure out how to wean ourselves from fossil fuel burning. So the land matters, but it's kind of secondary to actually getting off this fossil fuel trajectory. Especially coal. Thank you. Um, let's make this the last two questions, unless somebody else quickly hurries up to Last three questions. Hello, Harlan Cohen, IUCN World Conservation Union. I wanted to get back to this issue of uh, ocean acidification. Um, we, uh, I think, pretty much understand that as the ocean acidifies, as the pH goes down, the uh, coral will suffer and other biomass will be affected. Did I understand correctly that these aspects have not as yet been incorporated into models with respect to the atmosphere. Would that be fair to say? Thank you. Uh, I think that's more or less true. The, uh, certainly they're not, they're not in the models that I showed, okay? And there may be a few people out there who have tried to incorporate these things. Uh, the effect of, one thing we haven't touched on is the effect of, if you, if you did reduce coral growth, that has some effect on the carbonate in the ocean because you didn't take it out. Uh, you actually left carbonate in the ocean, and that actually helps you take CO2 out of the air because more carbonate means more buffer. So there is a feedback in that sense that helps you. And that's, you could say that's a little piece of David Archer's uh, carbonate buffering that might kick in on a 1,000-year time scale. This is a little piece that might kick in sooner from corals. I think we'd probably prefer it didn't kick in because we tend to like corals. Of course, the corals help the fish, so that yeah. if you take the coral out, you have other unintended effects. Yeah, lots of have not, I think, been addressed yet. But that was my question. Yeah. They have or have not been addressed. They've not been addressed in the models in any in any, in any concerted way. Well, there have been some papers that try to to try to put these effects in to see what effect see what the impact is on on the rise of atmospheric CO2. My sense is that because it the 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 calcium carbonate system is so slow at affecting the pH of the ocean and everything that the perturbation in the next 100 years is, is not a, a, a huge one. It doesn't make a huge difference to the atmospheric CO2 concentration. So I wouldn't advocate forcibly dissolving coral reefs to, uh, to solve the CO2 problem because it's, it's just doesn't, it's not big enough. Brief plug. I mean, there's a, a repeat hydrography program going on right now to try to map what's happening to ocean chemistry decade by decade. And one of the things that you need to look at is essentially a measure of carbonate ion in the ocean through something called the direct measure of alkalinity. Uh, the existing measurements don't show very big changes, perhaps little tantalizing suggestions, but this kind of observational program is absolutely critical to tracking whether this thing is happening and matters, and uh, th those programs are really not far enough along to say much. But I agree with David. It's unlikely to have big effects in the next 100 years. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the so-called idea of runaway climate change, which I've heard uh, is rumored to be a possibility in terms of actually altering our, our atmospheric chemistry to the point where 
the planet can no longer sustain life as we know it. I'm not sure if that's actually true or if that's mythological. You didn't address it at all, so I'm curious to know your thoughts. Well, uh, among climate scientists, there's a, something called the runaway greenhouse effect involving water vapor. So this happened on Venus. So what happened is it, it, it's too warm to have liquid water. The water evaporates, and then that's a greenhouse gas, and so that causes more warming and more evaporation. There is a water vapor feedback on, on Earth, but it doesn't run away because the temperatures are cool enough that you eventually reach the point where it, it rains, 100% relative humidity. And uh, it's not within the realm of possibility that we're going to make our atmosphere go to a runaway greenhouse effect because it's just not hot enough and we're not talking about that much CO2. So in the strict sense of how runaway greenhouse effect is used by climate scientists, that's not something that, that keeps me up nights. Uh, just by, by curiosity, if you were to build a giant wall in the atmosphere around the tropics so that the sun comes in at the tropics with its full force and then you don't carry the heat to the high latitudes, which act as sort of cooling fins for the planet, in that case, the tropics would, would be very close to a runaway greenhouse effect. So it's not a totally absurd idea, but, but given that we do have these cooling fins of the high latitudes, uh, I think we're safe from that. That's good to know. Thank you. This uh, could be a very short answer. I think you might have uh, talked to not being able to uh, answer this before. But... Um, you both talked to the correlation of humans with the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. Do you have numbers to the significance of the human variable into that the system? Well, we know how much CO2 is being released by fossil fuel burning reasonably well. So the way to create a budget and base an understanding is really based on those kinds of numbers. We don't need to do a correlation between CO2 and humanity to establish the causal link. The causal link is secure. Now, one could do correlations and probably come up with some inferences, but this is kind of like trying to prove that there are seasons by looking at CO2 in the atmosphere. Well, we know there are seasons, right? So um, some things are better established other ways than by correlation. I, I, I guess that's true. I just... And when you, when you look at the long-run graphs, you can tell that there's a driver in the system that's not in the budget, which is kind of real why I asked the question, is just since that's not in the short-term budget, which I realize that that's short-term, and we all realize there's other effects of which a couple of them were talk, uh, uh, addressed. But it, what, are, what is the significance of the, those variables, I guess, in the system? Those, they look like they're, they're the significant variables. I'm not sure I'm getting the idea behind your question. Can you? I'm not either, actually. <laughs> so I can't answer it with, with just Well, try, try again. Try again. Uh, humans are producing uh, CO2. I mean, yeah. Yeah. but uh, greenhouse gases are a s smaller portion of the atmosphere, human production is a smaller portion. If you did the, the significance of the correlation that you all, all the graphs addressed, it seems like it would be small and maybe, I'm just guessing here, I was asking you guys because you, oh, this is your field. It, it seems that there's a possibility that it could be, uh, as far as economics or as far as graphs or uh, forecasting, 
is concerned, an insignificant number. I was wondering if that had been addressed in any of your. What would what what, what number is insignificant? The uh, the human effect of. Well, CO2. on CO2, the human release of CO2 on uh, the environment. Well, it's certainly true that uh, the exchange fluxes of carbon dioxide into the ocean or into the, the land biosphere are larger than the uh, the fossil fuel release rate. So, so Ralph mentioned 60 billion metric tons of CO2 going to photosynthesis. The ocean gives up and takes off in various parts of the world 100. So. The human release of, of seven seems smaller than those, but the difference is that the human release is uh, a one-way, you know, from the earth into the air with nothing going back, whereas these others are exchange fluxes. You could also compare that the human fossil fuel release to the natural rate of CO2 degassing from the earth in volcanoes and the hot springs at the mid-ocean ridges, and that number is about 0.1. So, so humans are definitely, and that, so that, that's a directly comparable thing. That's from the earth into the air. And so human activity is definitely sort of swamping that. Another way to think of the same thing is that the CO2 concentration from the ice cores in the Holocene before people, so bef well, before fossil fuels, so before about the year 1750, the CO2 concentration was very stable. And so the sources and sinks were in balance, and then all of a sudden it started shooting off which shows how much it has gone out of balance. I, and we have good numbers for how much CO2 is building up in the air, how much fossil fuel burning is being released, and we understand that the natural system is taking CO2 out and wasn't responsible for putting the CO2 to elevated levels like it is now. This is really secure. I want to emphasize that. When you look at the what, what's happened in the last 50 years and projected for the next 50 years from the point of view of a an earth scientist who's used to thinking of things being in balance and on millions of years, this is a train wreck. Thank you. Um, well, that's it. Um, we are going to, David and uh, Ralph will be around for a while if you want to informally talk with them, get to know them. Great. Uh, we still have some food left. Next time out, maybe around the week of the 8th of February, we'll do something on climate and air pollution. And uh, we're working on it. Just can't get the schedules to match. Anyway, thank you for coming.